Well, good afternoon. Welcome to our session number four, dealing with domestic policy and trade policy. Um, we have three very qualified panelists whom I will introduce. Is it still not on? Should, should lift it higher? That's there better. You go. Okay. Thanks, because I, I couldn't hear myself back at all. Thank you. Uh, introducing alphabetically, Ted Alden, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, began his career as a journalist, did that with the Vancouver Sun, with the Financial Times, of most importance to trade policy buffs, where the several years he spent early in mid-90s with uh, inside, inside the US trade, where he was the managing editor. This was back at a time when it was a weekly publication, and you know, uh, it, you, you had to read it on Friday when it came out. Uh, Jim Colby is well, best known for his work in Congress, although he's now doing really good work at the German Marshall Fund. For those who are not familiar with the US congressional system, you should be aware that Jim spent most of his years there as an appropriator. And this, so his job was to allocate money effectively to various government agencies. And it can be fun, and it, you can get a certain amount of influence in Congress when you're passing out money, believe me. But what's interesting is he did not serve in a policy com on a policy committee that was dealing with international trade. He dug into trade policy. I don't know if you'd want to call it as a hobby or a passion, but. It was sort of as a result of uh, Bill Frenzel being my mentor. And when he retired, I said, oh. somebody's got to take this mantle. Okay and get work on it. Good. Uh, at any rate, he, he really developed a, a, quite a reputation as an advocate for trade liberalization in the Congress. It was extremely active in getting the NAFTA approved. And in honor of those efforts, at the time he was retiring from Congress in 2007, received the Washington International Trade Association's Lifetime Achievement Award. Damian Levy is the head of the trade and agriculture section at the EU delegation here in uh, Washington. But b before he came here, he had the interesting opportunity to serve as uh, in, the, in the EU commission as deputy chief negotiator for the launching of the TTIP talks. So then they sent him to Washington to try to keep an eye on us and figure out what we were doing. Uh, so the, the current political landscape in this country must be leaving him entirely vexed. Uh, at any rate, before he was with the commission, he was in a, uh, an attorney in a law firm, both in New York and Brussels. So he's seen the process from the private sector and the public sector and from both sides of the Atlantic. I'm Dan Pearson, a se senior fellow here at Cato. Uh, before that, I was 10 years at the US International Trade Commission. Is my fellow commissioner Meredith Broadbent here? She was earlier. OK. Uh, I, I spent uh, 16 years at a major multinational company. Before that, I was on the Hill for a few years in the Senate. Uh, but of particular relevance to this panel, back in the glorious days of my youth when I farmed for a living in the late 70s and early 80s, among other things, I raised broiler chickens. <laughs> I live in hope that one day, European consumers will be able to purchase and enjoy wholesome, nutritious US broiler chickens that have been ever so delicately rinsed in a chlorine bath. <laughs> so, with, with that, for uh, introductions, let's turn now to um, the topic at hand. Uh, 
I had the opportunity last week to hear a presentation by Bruce Stokes of the Peer Research Center, in which he unveiled some um, uh, recent analysis that they had done on public opinion in both Europe and the United States regarding trade. The, the figures that I pulled out from his presentation involved US and German attitudes to the basic question, will TTIP be a good thing or a bad thing for the country? And I'm sorry, we don't have the broader EU numbers, but for, he was quite impressed with the German results. Um, in the United States, 50% of respondents thought that TTIP would be good, 21% thought it would be bad. In Germany, the goods were only 41, so somewhat less, and the bads were quite a bit higher at 36%. So then the, the follow-up question for all those who answered the question in the negative, not wanting, not being happy with TTIP, what, what's the reason for that? 50% of American respondents were concerned that TTIP would lead to job losses, losses and, and lower wages. Only 17% of the Germans were concerned about that. However, only 12% of US respondents were concerned that TTIP would lead to a decline in environmental uh, health safety standards, automobile standards. Americans not at all concerned about that. 61% of Germans think they're going to give their safety away completely if, if TTIP uh, goes into effect. So it's a really interesting uh, contrast. With that as background, gentlemen, what, what's your assessment of the public opinion surrounding trade at this time? Well, I guess we'll go down the <clears throat> start by going down the road, and then maybe you want to call on specific people. But uh, I think those numbers are interesting because they represent a reversal of what it was just uh, a year or two ago, where the German and, and all the European support for TTIP was much higher than it was in the United States. And it was thought that this was going to be the difficult part was going to be over here. I think it's still going to be, we'll talk about that, politically difficult here. Uh, but clearly, there are a number of things that have happened in Europe that have diminished the support for it. Uh, there is the growing nationalism. There is the growing division, the fact that the entire, all the, the European uh, uh, parliament has to approve it and all the countries have to approve it. There is the NSA in Germany. The NSA scandal, I think, has clearly diminished a lot of the support for that. And then, then there are all the groups that are talking about the environmental issues that, that, that Dan just mentioned that I think are making people nervous about this. Here in the United States, it's clearly been loss of jobs. But with the economy coming back, that kind of diminishes a little bit. So the support, I think, for here in the United States has been a bit stronger. It's never been strong for a, lo for a lot of trade agreements in general. But I think it's an interesting way in which the two sides have somewhat reversed themselves here in the last uh, couple of years since the negotiations were proposed and got underway. I'd say a couple of things. First of all, it's still positive in Germany. It's 41 to 36. Um, and um, I think the only other country where you have very strong opposition in Austria, you have opposition in the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, more broadly, but I think Austria and Germany are the two countries where opposition and, and I think skepticism is the highest. It's one of the paradoxes of these negotiations, to be frank. When we started two years ago, um, it was pushed strongly by Germany, Austria, uh, and those other countries which export a lot to the United States and stand to gain a lot. And 
um, we had expected there would be more opposition from the South, because typically in, in trade policy in Europe, uh, you'd have this, this opposition from North versus the South in anti-dumping cases, for example, or, or more trade liberalization. But here it's been the reverse. It's been the reverse with uh, a German public very skeptical. Um, the deal wasn't explained for a long time to a German public. By, uh, uh, by leaders, be it in, in government or, or, or business. You have to remember, we had a switch in government in October 2013, so you had elections, then a transition to a new government. So there was, um, the attention went to el elsewhere in, in Germany at the time. But if you look at similar polls in, in Italy, Portugal, Spain, Greece, you see very strong support for TTIP, actually. Um, so I think it's very balanced, uh, mixed views, mixed uh, things, and that calls for um, true specific reactions. We've been doing much more in terms of transparency to explain what TTIP, what it's not, but it has to be done together with leaders and people who are trusting in their own public opinions. There is no European public opinion. You have 28, if not more, uh, public opinions. So, uh, it's up to leaders in each public opinion who are trusted by the population to explain why is it that they call for these negotiations and why they think it's uh, still so important. Uh, thanks very much. It's, it's great to be here with, uh, with Damien, Congressman Colby, and Dan. Thanks for the, the question. As you mentioned, I've been watching this for something over, over two decades now, and I think we're actually in a particularly interesting time right now. So if you go back to the late 80s, early 90s, the conclusion of the Uruguay Round, the conclusion of NAFTA, but a very ambitious trade agenda and opposition that was really still just forming. I mean, there was a big fight over NAFTA, but, but fairly the, the opposition at the time from unions, the environmental groups, was kind of nascent. They were still figuring out what their positions were. They were still figuring out how to run campaigns. Post-Uruguay round, the opposition got a lot better. I mean, they, they knocked off the multilateral agreement on investment. You had the protests in Seattle, and, and, and you had, perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, the lack of an ambitious trade agenda. So we had the long period where really what we saw, at least from the US end, and, and I think to a lesser extent from the European end too, were, were not terribly ambitious bilateral uh, arrangements, a Doha round that, that moved very slowly. Now suddenly, here we are in a period where you have, I think, an opposition that is better organized, better informed, more effective, partly as a result of social media than it's ever been before, but you also have a tremendously ambitious trade agenda. The TPP in the United States, the TTIP in both the United States and Europe, um, more going on at the kind of plurilateral level, the trade and services agreement negotiations and others. So I think we're in a really interesting time right now where you have the, you know, the, the proverbial clash of the, uh, of the um, you know, irresistible force, immovable object going on here. And so I, I, I think how this plays out is going to be, be really interesting. I mean, if, if you look historically, I would have to say, ambitious agreements like this tend to get through, but I don't think they've ever occurred at a time where the public opposition was as strong and as organized as it is right now. Jim, from your experience in Congress, you know that at times the Congress does feel compelled to do something that is a little bit different than what public opinion would suggest. Can you give a few thoughts on how Congress might find a way to deal with the anti-trade pressures and still come out in favor of an agreement? That, that's what you just said has certainly been the case since, at least since the passage of, of NAFTA, the consideration of NAFTA, where there was strong public opposition, but Congress has always had a more of a 
pro-trade uh, agenda or has been more, been more favorable toward trade agreements. That's changing a bit now, I think. Uh, you, you've seen this in the last, well, the, the Trade Promotion Authority in 2002, by one vote, the Trade Promotion Authority this time uh, for President Obama by a handful of votes, six, seven, eight votes there. So they've been very, very narrow and close kinds of, of votes. Uh, so it has become much more difficult to pass uh, these agreements. And, and what you have, of course, as historically is a reversal of roles going way back more a century and more, where Republicans, uh, where businesses opposed trade agreements because they wanted protection. And so Republicans tended to be against any kind, of, it wasn't trade agreements in those days, but any kind of lowering of tariffs or anything that, that liberalized trade. And Democrats uh, representing working people were more in favor of these trade, uh, these trade liberalization uh, movements. Now the situation is reversed where companies and businesses generally support the trade agreements. Labor unions have taken a strong stand against these trade agreements, uh, starting with, with NAFTA and a little bit before that, but starting strongly with NAFTA. And as, as, as Ed said, they've really gotten their voice on this now. And they've learned exactly what to do and how to do these grassroots uh, efforts in, against this thing. And even though trade unions represent fewer and fewer people uh, in the working in workers today, they still have an inordinate amount of influence in the process because of the money they contribute and the workers that they provide for door-to-door uh, -door campaigning and telephoning and all the other kind of groundwork that has to be done in political campaigns. So Democrats tend to pay a lot of, of attention to what is being said by the the trade unions. So you have this, this, this rather uh, contentious uh, argument that's going on between the two sides. Uh, and how this will play out, I think, is going to, we don't, really don't know yet. It, it was said for a long time that TPP would be the very, which should have been the easy one to negotiate, but a very tough one to pass. And TTIP, on the other hand, should be easy to negotiate since we have two very large, similar, integrated economies on both sides of the Atlantic, but uh, a tougher one to, uh, uh, but an e and an easy one to pass, rather, a more difficult one to, I, I'm sorry, a more difficult one to uh, negotiate because of the differences on things like uh, patents and, and uh, intellectual property and the chickens and a few other things like that, uh, but it should be the easier one to pass. Now I don't think we're going to see that. We found that TPP was difficult to negotiate, and we still don't see, see all the uh, details of that yet. And we now see that I think TTIP is going to be a very difficult one for us to pass when and if we get it. The one last thing I would say on this uh, is we're, we're definitely not looking at anything that's going to be considered by Congress in this administration. This will, at the very earliest, be 2017. Uh, before this agreement is whatever it is, whether it's a piecemeal or, or a large agreement before it's submitted to Congress. I think the interesting thing is to consider whether TPP will even get to Congress uh, before the next administration. Uh, Damien, so how does it look in Europe? I read just this morning that Angela Merkel has come out again very much in favor of TTIP. Uh, not, not many weeks ago, the European Parliament blessed a different concept for investor-state dispute settlement. So clearly there is... Uh, a progress at the political leadership level to move forward. Right. I think what has been reassuring for negotiators is that the political leadership in Europe, including European Parliament in, in June, July, in its latest resolution on TTIP, has 
have continuously supported the negotiations, um, including what Chancellor Merkel has said uh, uh, today. And when, if you listen to Prime Minister Renzi or the Spanish Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister, they're all in favor and want us to move ahead. Even when President Hollande was here, I think it was, he came out very clearly in favor of, of TTIP. So I think um, what we hear from American counterparts is that European leaders need to make, make a better effort at explaining what, what, what's going on. Um, I can tell you from the inside, from the European Commission, we've, we've worked very hard to make it more transparent, to explain more. We never communicated about a trade agreement in languages other than English. Uh, no, we explained TTIP in 22 languages. We have more than 10 documents explain what TTIP is and is not in many other languages. So the, the tools are there for uh, people to communicate about it, business to communicate about it. I think it's true that European companies were not a used to have to do any advocacy work in favor of, of trade agreements. So um, they are awakening, but it's, um, it's a slow progress in, and in an environment where companies are cutting budgets for government affairs um, and that kind of thing. And so it's, it's not clear if a project like TTIP doesn't have an impact on your bottom line in the next four quarters, what do you do? Are you going to put, put any dime on the table or not? No, it's, no, it's the association that have to do it, and then the association turn to government and say, it's up to the governments to do it. And I think if you look at the, the concerns in, in Germany or other European countries expressed over the weekend, but expressed at earlier demonstrations, you hear concerns about consumer rights. So TTIP or big American companies are seen as a danger to our good rules, so a good consumer protection, workers' rights, uh, environmental standards, uh, and even democracy. Um, scratching my head, and I think, well, that's in all interesting, but we've said all along we will not negotiate down our rules, protections on environmental standards, or labor protection, or consumer protection. We've said all along we would not negotiate data protection uh, rules as such in TTIP, and still TTIP is seen as this Trojan horse that will bring all these bad things from the U.S., Frankenfood and all that. Um, so there's a very big communication effort to be, to be made. Uh, we've, I'm, I'm sure we can do more. I mean, Commissioner Malmström has been doing much more than previous commissioner on transparency and communication. Um, and we'll keep on doing more. But there'll be a limit to what we can do uh, as long as the negotiations haven't progressed enough. That's one of the difficulties that we are confronted with, of course, is that as long as there is no TTIP negotiated, well, you can't sell anything. You can sell a concept. You can say, we, we, we aim to do this, and we will not do that. But for the rest, give us a bit of time, and we need to work on the negotiation, get them done, and then we'll be able to sell them. And that probably explains also why a number of companies are waiting and are on the sideline and say, well, I want you to agree on some things, and then I'll know to what extent I can support, or I need to criticize what you'll be uh, doing. I think we, it's also important to remember that TTIP was launched in a period where I think there was much more stronger support for trade liberalization in Europe than, than there is today. I mean, 09, 14, the, the Barroso II European Commission, was the former president of the European Commission, was very forceful in pursuing a, a trade agenda going, TTIP is part of an agenda. It's not a single project for the European Commission. We negotiated an FTA with Japan. We've done one with Vietnam. We've done one with Canada a year ago. Uh, we are negotiating on and off with India and the Mercosur countries, Central America, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, 
Ukraine, a number of an African country, the Economic Partnership Agreement. So we have very ambitious trade policy agenda uh, across the world, and we'll probably launch negotiations with Australia and New Zealand, upgrade our agreement with Mexico and Chile. So TTIP is part of very big agenda, if you want, and there was strong support for that agenda. I believe there still is, but public opinion has become much more critical about this project, which is called TTIP. So Ted, your observations on political and thought leadership dealing with complicated public opinions? Yeah, I, I mean, a, a couple of things. I, I, I would like to, I'd like to reinforce Damien's point about what the commission has been doing on the transparency front. So I think there are, you know, there are lots of things that are swirling about in public opinion, but one of the arguments you hear very often is that all of this is being done in secret. Uh, that corporations have outsized influence and that ordinary people don't know what's going on and can't affect it. And, and I think in the context of how the U.S. has traditionally handled its trade negotiation strategy, that critique actually has a lot of legitimacy. I mean, you, you, the United States has done negotiations in secret. All, all countries have. You look, you look at the advisory committee structure. It's heavily weighted towards the interests of business. And so there's a lot of that critique that I think has considerable legitimacy. And as these trade agreements move into areas of, as they do more and more into areas of consumer and environmental regulations, that becomes a lot more questionable. When you're talking about kind of trade-offs on tariffs that are, that are really sort of profit loss issues for the companies, maybe makes a little more sense to handle negotiations that way. But in these new areas, Obviously, there are much broader public interests that are affected by the outcome of these agreements. So I've been really encouraged by what I've seen the, the commission doing. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out when the negotiations get farther along and you're really trading offers. But the commission has been putting its proposals out there uh, in a very public way, quite transparent about everything it's doing. I think really trying to tackle very head on that criticism about secrecy. I'm hoping that the United States uh, will follow that lead in the TTIP negotiation. It will be a, a big change of direction uh, for the United States. It's one other kind of unrelated comment on the United States, and it comes out of that, uh, that Pew poll that you mentioned. And you drill down to that, one of the very interesting things, and this gets to the disconnect between the public and Congress. If you look in Congress right now, you've got a Democratic Party that is almost united in opposition to continuing on trade, and a Republican Party that's quite supportive, even the, the Tea Party elements who I think a lot of us thought, well, maybe for you know, nationalist or anti-government grounds are going to be suspicious, but generally been fairly supportive. But you drill down into that poll that, that Bruce was part of. Um, Democrats, actually Democratic voters, are much more favorable to trade now than Republican voters are. And I think part of that's the kind of changing um, demographic of Democratic voters. A lot more young voters, a lot more you know, multi-ethnic, Hispanic uh, immigrant, you know, new immigrants who've become US citizen voters. And, and the parties haven't really kind of completely caught up, I think, with where their electorate's at, certainly in the way this is likely to, to be handled when it goes to the Congress. I think that is an important point that really does need to be emphasized. The polling data, it does show now that Democrats, by and large, uh, the people identify themselves as Democrats, support trade to a greater degree than those who identify themselves as Republicans, which is quite a reversal. And as he says, we really, the parties really haven't caught up with that. It's going to be interesting to see, particularly how the Democrats react to this as their younger voters, more entrepreneurial voters, uh, socially movement, social media voters come to the fore that if they're going to change their position on the trade mm -hmm. trade agreements. Okay. Well, well, let's shift and, and say a few words about uh, the role of elections themselves in influencing the 
whole uh, uh, domestic political environment. Uh, Damien, th this, um, this morning, Sean Donnelly mentioned three elections upcoming in Europe that may have some influence. The German general election, the French presidential election, and then the referendum in the EU on whether they should stay in the UK. In the UK. UK and whether they should stay in the EU. Would you offer some thoughts on that? Well, I thought Congressman Colby would talk first in <laughs> politics, but happy to take that one. Um, but it's clear that elections in large member states have more influence on, our, on what we do overall and the projects that we pursue and the pace at which we pursue those projects. Um, I would tend to think that the British will ask us to keep on moving on TTIP um, and not slow down. And when we listened to President Hollande last year, when he was here, or earlier this year, no, last year, uh, he said, you know, it's very important for European United States to move on, on TTIP. Let, let's get it done quickly. Um, and I don't know what uh, Chancellor Merkel will say, but I'm sure she's in favor of a strong agreement. But I think overall, if you, uh, if you look at it, we will say we want a good deal, and substance will prevail over speed. Um, and the elections themselves are not likely to influence well, that much. Elections do have an impact on your ability to move. We've seen this um, when we had elections for our, with our European Parliament and a transition to a new commission. We've seen this during the midterm elections. I mean, in the run up, run up to the midterm elections, um, you have a bit more nervousness on the side where you have elections to move on sensitive issues. That, that's for sure. Um, how it will play out, I think, is too early to say. I think it's. Uh, I would agree with Sean Donalds that uh, TTIP being uh, a popular topic and that is a topic of you know, dinner table conversations in, in families across France, Germany, and the UK, uh, yes, it will be a topic in the, in, in the campaign. What impact that will, be, that will be having on the, on the negotiations is too early to tell. You know, basically, we will try to close with the Obama administration. Uh, we think it's technically possible, difficult. Um, yes, I agree. Um, but feasible, and but we need to step up the work uh, in all areas for sure on both sides. It's still doable. It's still doable, and then you you would be done before the election campaign starts in in France uh, and then in the other countries. Uh, the UK, I don't know when they will hold their referendum, and it hasn't been um, decided yet. I think uh, so. We'll see. Um, so yes, they have an impact, of course. Um, what impact, I think, is, is premature. I would say for next year, it should only incentivize us to move ahead and, and try to conclude. But uh, substance will have to prevail uh, over speed, that's for sure. The European Commission will not uh, try to rush to a deal with the Obama administration if it doesn't feel the, the deal is, is good for Europe. I'm sure you will hear the same from your STR. They'll say, yes, we'll try to get it down. It has to be a good and ambitious deal. So we'll see. Ted, uh, ready or not, we have an election coming up in this country in a little more than a year, both congressional and presidential. Um, last I checked, none of the leading candidates of either party seem to be much inclined toward trade liberalization. How do you read the implications of the US election for what might happen in TTIP? I mean, the, the timing is difficult. I'm, I'm, I'm going to crib a little bit from my lunchtime conversation with Congressman Colby, so I, I apologize if I steal any of his thunder here. But we were, we were talking about this, that, that, that you do... I mean, the problem from the U.S. perspective is that the majority for trade is so narrow. 
um, as, as Jim mentioned, um, you know, a handful of votes. And so particularly when it comes to the TPP vote in the fall, and I know this is about TTIP, but in the sequencing, TTIP comes after TPP. So Congress has got to be able to deal successfully with TPP before we even get to the question of whether TTIP can pass. And I, and I actually do think in the US, TTIP will be a much easier sell in the Congress than, uh, than TPP is. And so there just isn't, isn't all that much room for error. If, if I look at these things historically, my, my read is that, that the geopolitical importance of an agreement like TPP or a TTIP, if it's concluded, is so enormous that even some of those who are skeptical in Congress are inclined to support it at the end of the day, because saying no at that stage is such a blow to an important ally in the TPP to a Japan and to an Australia, obviously in TTIP to, to the European nations that are the, the closest American allies. I should throw in Canada and Mexico on the TPP as well. So that at the end of the day, Congress will support this, um, but the timing is, is really difficult. Um, the Obama administration would obviously like to do this in the spring, and if you know, we're still in a situation in the spring where you know, Donald Trump has done well in the first couple of primaries, Obviously, you know, Secretary Clinton has now come out against the TPP um, rather awkwardly, I think, given her historic position on this, but, but she has, and so that's going to make it harder for s some Democrats. So, so I do think at the very least there's the possibility of the election year pushing all of this back even farther, that the TPP vote gets knocked back to the lame duck or maybe even to a new administration and TTIP correspondingly gets pushed uh, farther back. Uh, at the end of the day, I still believe that Congress will, will pass both agreements, assuming TTIP can be negotiated, but, but certainly it's a problem in terms of timing. Well, Jim, you had the opportunity to get up close and personal with the electorate 11 times? Yeah, 11 yeah. times. Uh, you, you've been through some of these conflicts before. What's it look like to you? Well, it was, trade was never that popular, even in, in Arizona, despite uh, 22 years of trying to educate my constituents about the value of trade agreements. It was never that popular, but I, I, I'll call it the... The Colby mantra on that is that the benefits of trade are wide and diffused, uh, while the benefits uh, for protectionism are narrow and focused. So guess who wins on those? It's always the people who have a very narrow, focused agenda on that, and that's why trade is, is, has become such a difficult political issue. Uh, the, the situation looking at, into this next year is as cloudy for trade as it is for the presidential elections, but I will make one prediction that I think with absolute certainty, and that is that if the two nominees <coughs> for president of the major parties are Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, you can probably take your trade agenda and put it in the bottom drawer <laughs> with some mothballs and forget about it for the next four years after that. But that's probably not likely to, uh, to, to happen. But I do think it's likely that uh, Secretary, if, if uh, Secretary Clinton continues to be the lead in the, in the polls, it looks like she's going to be the nominee, I think the Democrats will have to feel that they can't vote on TPP next year, and that pushes the whole trade agenda back. I think it's very unlikely, but I said this before, and I think even without that, I think it's unlikely that TTIP can possibly be done, and it, virtually impossible that it could be voted on before the next election. 
Uh, I'm beginning to think that it's going to be very difficult for TPP to be voted on before the next election, uh, maybe in a lame duck, but uh, TTIP can't be even completed before that time. So it's going to be up to the next uh, administration, and we just don't know who that's going to be and exactly what point, what approach they will take. If it is a president to Clinton, uh, she would undoubtedly want to reconsider certain items in the negotiations. So you, in some sense, you kind of start over at the beginning there. But this is not going to be an easy... This is not going to be easy at either at, at, of, on either side of the of the House and Senate, or in either side politically. Can I just add one, one thing, Dan? You know, if this does get kicked over, I think everybody says, "Well, it gets kicked over to the next president," and that's enormous uncertainty. But if you look at what happened under President Obama, you do realize there's enormous pressure to continue with the agenda on trade, at least that your predecessor set out. So, I mean, President Obama ran on a fairly anti-trade uh, yeah. platform. And, and admittedly, it took him a while, right? He didn't move to it immediately, but, but he's kind of more from, you know, from being the candidate who was very skeptical about trade, wanted to renegotiate NAFTA, not in the way it's kind of being renegotiated in TPP, but wanted to, to you know, really kind of go back and tear the thing up, to becoming the president who's presiding over the most ambitious set of trade liberalizations in, in two decades now. So, so I do think there's a lot of pressure to kind of stick with the program on, on trade. It, it, it's yeah. been observed that, that President Obama <clears throat> made a quick pivot in the direction of trade agreements, faked out his own team, and, and went in to kind of try to score with the Republicans. And it, it's, it's a very interesting situation. Uh, I, I hope he. I, hope I mean, he I, you know, I believe he did it for, for good reasons, yeah. and it took a little while. But but I do think there's you know there's there's just a lot of pressure on trade to to keep moving forward in one yeah. way or another. Okay, uh, one of the issues that came up in, in a panel this morning was the uh, federalism issues in the United States, uh, uh, the federal government versus state and local governments, and how they handle certain issues, and and that's also uh, a potential concern in Europe. Ted, do you have? A, any th thoughts? Are, is the United States going to have to knock heads, and are we going to have to get various levels of government to coordinate a little better in order to uh, make TTIP uh, what it should be? Well, I, I mean, the answer, the answer is yes, but I, what I personally would like to see is a complete reformulation of the role of states in U.S. trade policy. You know, I mentioned the advisory committee structure, which is weighted so heavily to corporate interests. There is a, a state government advisory committee, but it's been moribund for most of its history and not, and not terribly effective. If you actually look at the interests of, of the states in trade policy, they're very dramatic, right? So, you know, most states now are, are very actively in the investment promotion game. A lot of large cities are. They're increasingly looking at what their export opportunities are. If you, you know, to plug a competitor, if you look at the work that Brookings is doing under its Global Cities Initiative about identifying export opportunities for large municipalities, state and local governments in the United States are waking up to the importance of international trade policy for their economic interests. When we talk about it from the federal level, it's all about, well, getting the states to open up their procurement markets, which I, I think should be done. But I think the way you do that is to bring the states much more deeply into the formulation of trade policy. And the US government says, you know, we're going to do these things you want on the investment front and the export promotion front. And, and in exchange, you've got to do some stuff for us, including finally getting serious about opening your procurement markets or taking care of, of, of tax problems where they exist and they discourage foreign investment. So I would like to see a much, much closer ongoing working relationship between state and local governments and the federal government. Canadians have done this well mm -hmm. on trade policy with their provinces. Now, you know, there are only 10 provinces, we're 50 states, but I still think it's something that we could do. Well, I'd, I'd I agree with Ted. I'd like to see that happen, but it isn't going to happen. 
Uh, we aren't going to, the states aren't going to open up their, <clears throat> their cells on, on procurement. Uh, it's really <clears throat> interesting, as you said, states all have these, many of, many of them have foreign trade offices in London and Tokyo and elsewhere. They have, take trade missions. The governor takes trade missions with business people. They promote their exports. They do all this kind of thing. They bring, try to bring investment, but they're hydra-headed on, on some of these things. And you have very narrow on some of the tax issues and certainly on the procurement issues where they tend to be very kind of locally focused on this and protecting and uh, buy America is not only buy America, it's buy California or it's buy Oakland. Uh, you know, and, and they have these kinds of provisions in there. So I think it's a it's 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 kind of a dual head, a dual look look at the thing. And I don't think it's gonna. I just don't think we're gonna get there on on procurement. Though I really wish we could do that. And it's it's a big headache for our European friends to see that we have these kinds of fifty different approaches to things. But I guess we can now say, well, you've got twenty eight of them now that you have to deal with over there. So so it's in a sense, it's a little bit the same. Well, tell us a little bit about those 28 uh, frictions and the, the degree you. of the competencies between the national governments in Brussels. Yeah. Right. Um, well, as someone said earlier today, uh, in a number of areas, the European single market is more unified, uh, more harmonized than, than the US, depending on the services mm -hmm. sector that you look at or uh, the goods sector that you look at. But uh, from a European perspective, indeed, what states are, have been doing in procurement to the discrimination uh, that they have put in place um, is an issue that we need to address in the negotiations. That's clearly a, a, a request from our side um, in the negotiation that we need to address that uh, at state level, also at federal level. That's part of the market access discussions. Um, what we will get is a matter for, for the negotiations and what uh, we'll see where those, those discussions will, will take us. Um, but it's more than that, and, and, and there it goes both ways. Um, the rules, regulations adopted at state level or member state level are uh, a reason of concern for companies who wish to, to do trade uh, across the Atlantic. And we're trying as much as possible to look into this. Um, now it's true that we have our Canadian friends the provinces were actually in the room where we were negotiating public procurement. Um, and so that was easier. Of course, the transaction cost is easier because you have 10 provinces or, and, or 11 with the territories. With the US, it's a bit more difficult. So it's not up to me or us to say to the US what they should do, but that's a concern that we've expressed there. For example, if you look at regulated professions, um, there are uh, activities. Uh, architects, engineers, maybe accountants, uh, lawyers that are regulated at state level. And if we want to facilitate the movement of lawyers or accountants or architects, we need to have the state and the member state talk to each other or talk via proxies or people who, have, who represent the member states like we do at the European Commission in order to find more solutions uh, for mutual, re mutual recognition of, of professional qualification and so forth. So that, that's an area that we still need to look at very much. And it's clear that we could not, from a European perspective, accept a deal that would impose obligations at, on European institutions, member states, at, even at subnational member states, and nothing at the subfederal level in the United States. That would not be a balanced agreement, even though uh, if you look at the center of gravity, for example, of, of government procurement markets, 
obviously there's much more money being procured at member state level than at European level, so we need to keep that into perspective as, as well. But still, we'll, that will be part of the balance uh, and how people in Europe will look at this. I'm not saying it's easy, but we need to address this. Okay. We only have one real good opportunity to improve this transatlantic relationship, it's TTIP. So we've been looking at this for 20 years, trying to do low-hanging fruits, sector-specific stuff, but um, these haven't had a significant influence on our relationship. Now is, a, is the time to improve it, so we need to take the time to do it. Okay. I've been a little bit surprised with the evolution of financial services as they are discussed in TTIP or not discussed in TTIP. You know, with Europe and the United States being the two largest providers of financial services in the world, some sort of harmonization might make sense, and I think that's been the European position. If I understand Treasury Secretary Liu, he's not been at all enthused about the idea of having any discussions with those nasty Europeans about, uh, no, I'm putting words in his mouth, but uh, what, uh, what, uh, what's the state of play there? J Jim, are you following that? Well, a bit. I'm not probably not as, as expert as some others uh, are on this, but certainly I think you're right that the because we are two such gigantic financial markets, the opportunities in liberalization there or harmonization are tremendous. The, the benefits that would flow from that are probably as large as anything you can think of in the entire TTIP agreement that would flow from that. Uh, in the United States, the reluctance on this on the part, and I, and I think we should be doing it, but I think the reluctance in the United States is the passage of Dodd-Franks, and nobody wants to, it's too new, nobody wants to tamper with that, nobody wants to tinker with that. I think it definitely needs some tinkering with, but nobody really wants to deal with Dodd-Frank. And, and the Secretary of Treasury, this is a little bit of the turf battle, the Secretary of Treasury saying that's our area, you know, trade negotiators don't get into these, these financial services issues, that's for Treasury to negotiate, and so I think they've been reluctant because of the pushback they're getting from Capitol Hill about doing anything on this. They've been reluctant to really try and open the door that much on, on uh, financial services. Ted? Yeah, I don't have a lot to add. I, I just think that the, the trauma of the financial crisis and Dodd-Frank, a lot of that hasn't even been implemented yet, and I just don't think Treasury wants to, to touch this at this point. Is, is it too late to add it if the negotiation goes? Well, it's in there. Well, yeah, that's let, yeah. let me clarify our position. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's still on the table from yeah. our perspective. Okay. Oh, yeah. um, and it's, we don't see why, if we negotiate a trade investment agreement that has such a big regulatory dimension, we should take out financial services. That's such an integral part of our relationship. I mean, um, not only is it the money side of any transaction, but it's also, as you said, you know, I mean, European and American companies, be it in insurance, banking, reinsurance, securities markets, we are the leading companies in the world, and we're also leading in regulatory progress you know, or evolution. And so it only makes sense to have that part of a transatlantic economy, part of the um, of TTIP. And we're not looking for lowering Dodd-Frank. What we've been very clear is we want a forum where regulators meet regularly to talk about the new rules that they will adopt, to talk about how to implement um, rules that we've agreed at global level to, uh, to implement, because 
experience has shown us that yes, we agree stuff in the Financial Stability Board or other multilateral forum, and then in the implementation of those global agreements, um, there are differences, and these differences are costly, are not necessary from a, from a prudential uh, perspective or safety of the financial system, and so we think that, that financial services regulatory cooperation should be still part of CTIP. You probably aren't going to get much disagreement up here. With us, we probably need to bring somebody from okay. Treasury okay. on that one. <laughs> and just, just one additional point. In a way, it's not very different from other areas where pharmaceuticals or cars or uh, medical devices, where we have the regulators in the room. It's not that the trade negotiators want to take over the discussions on financial services. No, no, no. We want regulators to be in the room and Treasury officials together with our counterparts in the Commission. Is it okay? Um, and so I think the turf battle we can accommodate that to say, no, it's you are in charge. Actually, if you attend any regulatory talk in TTIP, you cannot, but I do. The people talking, doing the talk, are the regulators. It's not the trade negotiators. And so, uh, and that's also one of the reasons why we can confidently say that we will not lower the level of protection, be it on financial services or pharmaceutical products or medical devices, because the people who are doing the talks and assessing what is possible are the regulators themselves. We just coach them a bit. I mean, I will make one additional point, Dad, because I do think this emphasizes the difference between what it's being tried in TTIP and sort of the historical role of trade negotiations, because I covered the, the WTO financial services negotiations. And, and they didn't get that far, but essentially they were about market access, right? They were about making sure that financial services companies, insurance, securities, brokers, banks, were free to do business in other countries. But this is different, as I understand it. You're talking here about regulatory structures, prudential measures, ensuring the safety and soundness of the banking system. So it's a different set of issues in that respect from what was historically done that's in right. the WTO context. We, we so still, it makes it harder. Yeah. We would still do yeah. what we try sure. to do in the GATS yeah. and more, but we would do also regulatory issues. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the areas where this is very much breaking new ground, so maybe part of the reason it's difficult. But, but not on substance. It's simply setting up a corporate, a cooperative mm -hmm. structures to discuss later. So it's not like in pharmaceutical or cars or medical devices where we um, are trying to have binding outcomes in TTIP on substance. It would be just a process in a way. Well, before we open this up for some audience questions, I, I have one more issue that I'd like to put out here. And it, it is the, the sanitary, phytosanitary issues. And the, the reason that I raise it, it is an important domestic political issue in the United States for the agricultural community. My sense is if we conclude a TTIP that does not uh, allow some additional trade of genetically modified organisms and my, my chickens and, and uh, meat that might be treated with some hormones or something, if there's nothing in there for agriculture, I'm not sure that we could get the votes to, to pass a TTIP. And so is, is it possible to get something on those issues? Sure. Um, before we agreed to launch the negotiations, we looked at SPS issues um, on both sides, and we looked at a number of, of uh, files that had been there in the drawers on each side, applications that had been pending for years, and we're trying to move along as the negotiations progress on these individual issues. Um, and for example, I mean, I, I can go into the example, I'm not sure it's really necessary. Um, but we've, we've made some fundamental changes, for example, on um, uh, carcasses of beef. Now, in slaughterhouses in Europe, 
Uh, sorry, I have to be a bit uh, detailed here. Uh, it used to be the case that carcasses were only washed with water, and the, agree the, the, the discussion was, what's water? What's the temperature? How pure needs the water uh, to be? And um, we received a request to, from the United States to allow for carcasses to be exported to Europe that have been washed with water with 5% of lactic acid. Mm -hmm. And we allowed that because our EFSA, uh, Scientific Authority, um, gave an opinion that it's, it's actually safe, gave some recommendations on how to handle it, and we changed our rules. So now, throughout the European Union, in all slaughterhouses, you can either do water or just water plus lactic acid. Uh, and that was, I think, an important step, symbolic, to show that the U.S. that yes, Europeans are willing to make changes, not going to be business as usual. We get that agricultural uh, exports are important and then politically much more than if you look at GDP, that's for sure. It's, it's the same on our side in a way, but slightly differently. So we, we do get that. And if you look at um, agriculture from a European perspective, we are demandeurs for strong rules. Mm -hmm. We don't find it normal that Span Spanish farmers have to wait 15 years to get the export of avocados being approved. Yeah. We don't find it normal that apples and pears from Europe, most European countries are still not approved here. So there are things that can be done on this side as well. We can have stronger rules for both sides to facilitate trade for farmers. Um, so no problem, we, we can do WTO plus in SPS issues. Uh, that will require uh, authorities on both sides to agree to be bound by deadlines and by uh, clear rules. Okay, well, let me pile in on your side and say, I hope to be able at some point to buy uh, cheeses from Europe that are made from milk that has not been pasteurized. Okay, I think that would be very nice because there's some interesting cheeses that are made that way. And so, yes, we, we have our own SPS issues here that, uh, that should be put on the table. Okay, enough of that. Let's, let's turn to the <laughs> audience and see whether there are any questions. Jim. Thank you. Jim Berger from Washington Trade Daily. I was, interest, I was interested in your comments on, um, uh, I guess, a new, the young, not new, but the younger Democrats' voters moving towards uh, free trade or freer trade. Um, does that indicate that uh, Hillary Clinton is totally out of touch with her party? She's not out of, <clears throat> she's not out of touch with those who will, she'll, she'll need in the election. Those she'll need in the primary, primary yeah. tend to be different kinds of voters. And those she'll need who will support her with uh, the workers, the volunteers, and that. No, she's not out of touch in that sense there. But I think what you're seeing is a change in the demographic that will eventually catch up there. Yeah, can I add one more thing, Dan? It came very clearly out of that poll. While there is a shift on trade, trade is not a highly salient issue no, in the election. No, it's not a highly salient Pretty issue. far down the list of things that people vote on. Mm -hmm. Yes, here. Get one back on that side. Um, Adam B. Sudi with Politico. Um, I had two quick questions. Um, the kind of framed around, is it just getting harder and harder now to negotiate TTIP, um, given some things that have been happening? First, the ISDS uh, approach that was unveiled by the commission is the U.S. going to accept that? That seems to be highly, um, uh, it seems to be uh, the opposite of what's in the model bit in terms of what uh, the U.S. views as a model um, investor state dispute mechanism. And they, although they made some changes in TTIP, we'll see what those exactly are to, <clears throat> to soften the, um, the, the investor mechanism a bit. But 
Is that just going to be another red line that cannot be crossed? I know you don't like to use the word red line in, in the negotiations. Um, and then just last week, you saw the safe harbor decision. Um, I know data rules are not being negotiated, but businesses want data flow uh, rules in these deals. Um, how are these two issues linked? How will that decision affect the TTIP negotiations? Thank you. Great questions. Um, we don't talk about ISDS anymore. We talk about ICS, Investment Court System. Anyway, um, I think you, you have to step back and look at the, the essentials that we've been able to preserve. First of all, is that you would have, and we are very much in favor of rules to protect foreign investors. Uh, in many countries, it's actually quite brave to invest. Um, and you want a bit of extra protection because you're just not from that country. And so uh, I think in, with the new proposal and the resolution of the European Parliament, we have maintained that principle that inv foreign investors do need additional protection and host states should have fundamental obligations, but uh, also uh, the, the right to regulate to achieve legitimate pol public policy objectives should be clearly uh, reaffirmed in our trade agreements. And second, there should be uh, dispute resolution mechanisms whereby states waive their immunity, which is an exception actually in international affairs. You, usually states have immunity and you know, so you cannot sue a state um, uh, unless under specific um, uh, circumstances. So by maintaining these two principles that yes, investors have to have protection with the coral um, right to regulate that has to be reaffirmed, and the fact that states should be subject to uh, dispute res binding dispute resolutions. We think we've um, put the principles back on the table and we are able to negotiate on, on this topic, important topic of investment protection. Whether the US will agree or not, we haven't tabled our proposal and that will be a matter uh, for the negotiations. But we had been in a situation for a year and a half where we could not negotiate on investment protection because we wanted to conduct a public consultation. We had 144,000 comments on, on our um, list of questions. So we've had a very intense uh, discussion on, on the matter. Now we're able to negotiate again. On the safe harbor, a couple of points. Um, first of all, the, the court has answered questions from the Irish court. So people say, oh, the court didn't do this or that. Well, the court was very much limited in what it could do, it was asked a couple of questions by the Irish court, and it answered those uh, questions. The safe harbor decision of the commission has been held invalid by the courts, um, which in a way was in the line of the opinion of the Advocate General which came out of two or three weeks earlier. Um, does it come as a surprise? Yes, in a way. Um, but we've been working with the national data protection authorities to come up with a coordinated answer and guidance two companies on how to handle the new situation. This being said, the safe harbor was not the only ground to transfer data. Um, you had standard uh, contractual provisions, that is a way for companies to transfer data that has been used by companies. You had binding corporate rules to transfer data within your own groups. You had also the consent of consumers. So if companies ask European consumers or uh, their customers, do you agree that your data is transferred outside the European Union as part of the long list of provisions that you agree to when you sign an agreement, then it remains valid and it remains legal. So um, those are all, all 
ways to transfer data remain valid. And so the, the impact of the safe harbor decision needs to be looked at into that perspective. It's not that all data cannot, uh, all data transfers are banned in the future. What impact will it have on the negotiations? I think it's too early, too early to tell. It also depends on how European and national uh, authorities will handle the situation going forward. We had been discussing two I, years. I mean, we, our, our, time, our time is Thank very you. nearly out. Um, shall we take, uh, is it a quick question up there? Okay, we, we'll do one quick question. Yes, Alberto Alemana, I'm a law professor in Paris. I have a question on TTIP and public opinion. You highlighted the need to change the narrative around, around TTIP in order to conquer public opinion. And actually, the narrative has changed over time. As you know, at the beginning, it was very much about geopolitics. Then it became about the economy. Then it became about small and medium enterprises under the new commissioner. But yet, the argument remains uh, pretty much today raised to the bottom. So public opinion is very much concerned that this kind of agreement may reach a race to the bottom. Why don't you revert this? Why don't you present this as an opportunity for a race to the top? This permanent regulatory cooperation may actually give Excellent. the idea Excellent. about thank, consumer rights. Th thank you for the question. Let's, let's end uh, on that. Well, I mean, can I weigh in just quickly? I actually think that this is one of the big opportunities that, that TTIP represents. Um, I mean, th this is less of a concern from the U.S. as, as we saw in the polls in, in that particular regulation, but this has been ongoing narrative surrounding trade agreements. I think if, if we see a situation where we've got a TTIP that has strong regulations that cover the two largest consumer markets in the world, that puts tremendous pressure on the rest of the world to move up to those standards. So I actually think this is a real race to the top opportunity. I'd like to see that happen in substance. I also agree with the question. I'd like to see it presented that way. Anything? Sure, I think in a way that's what we've been doing. Um, but I think a number of skeptics will not believe us. They have not believed us that when we're saying we're not, it's not a race to the bottom, they will not believe us if we tell them it's a race to the top. But Jim? I think that uh, <clears throat> this is a great opportunity for us to, to be the two great powers, economic powers, that set the rules for the rest of the world. And I don't mean that we dominate it, but I mean we can set the standards and the rest of the world hopefully will follow along. If we don't do that, you can be sure that whether it's China or somebody else or, or it's a plethora of, of different kinds of arrangements, we'll do that. So I think it's a great opportunity for us, as you say, to kind of have a race to the top. My perspective is that what we're trying to do here is raise the quality of the trade policy debate. Yep. And if we, I hope we've been able to accomplish that to some degree. Please join me in thanking my fellow panelists. Thank you. Thank you. Very good, Dan.